Welcome to Radically Normal. I'm Andre and I'm here with Michael. And on today's episode titled Census 2020, we're going to discuss the genealogy, the Feast of Booths, and Ezra. I hope you enjoy the discussion. Welcome back, everybody. Mike and I are excited to dive back into the podcasting world. We both have a cup of coffee and we're ready to go. It's been a long time. It's been like since May 27th, I think. Yeah, Andre left to work in Florida, had an internship for a month. And we talked a little bit about the podcast while he was gone, but now he's finally back. And so while you might have just listened to the episode that released on the previous Thursday from this one, we haven't been recording or in Nehemiah for a month now. So we're ready to dive back in. We haven't been recording, but what we have been doing is you've been doing a lot of editing. I've listened to every episode, maybe like seven times each to do some timestamps. We've gotten some feedback from a lot of people (laughs) who listen. The mic is a little bit closer to my mouth now. We're going to try to flow a little bit better. Um, So we've gotten some feedback and we want to just improve and it's given us some time to really think about it, uh, prepare the next few episodes, kind of have a plan for the rest of the season, how that's going to go and our plan for recording. So we're kind of, we're like excited to get back into it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, We do apologize or uh, just forgive us. There's some episode later on before this one, but uh, not in the first couple where we kind of make some big announcement about the email but we started to put that out on the first episode's show notes so uh just overlook that part of the episode (laughs) yeah but honestly I just got back from Florida and Mike and I are thinking we just catch up a little bit on the podcast so we haven't really even talked too much about giving each other updates about the past month but have you been dude I've been good my class just finished up yesterday so I am Glad to be done with that. Now I don't have to read three hours a day for a four-week class. But on the negative side of that, they canceled Passion 2021 yesterday. So I uh, guess we won't be going to that. That's a real bummer. You guys heard us talk about Ravi. Yeah, but it's been good. I'm glad to finish up my class. Glad to record again. I have the LSAT in 11 days from when we're recording this. And besides that, it's July. July 4th is tomorrow. So it should be a good month. Yeah, honestly, passion getting canceled is really sad, but last year, I waited until the last minute to confirm to Mike I was going and like actually buying my ticket, and it ended up backfiring just because waiting so long, missed out on some discounts and all that, but this year, procrastinating really paid off because now I don't have to wait for my reimbursement. I don't have to deal with any of that. I just, I'm back where I was. I'm sad that passion's canceled, but I don't really have to go through all that extra trouble. Well, I'm just getting a refund. I don't know if that's a bunch of extra trouble, but I am ready for that. It looks like the MLB might be kicking off soon for uh, some games, so that's pretty exciting from a baseball fan perspective. And we both had some friends get drafted too, which is kind of cool. Hasn't I guess we're getting to that like age where like everyone's like kind of eligible and good. <laughs> for sure, my 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 closest two friends that got drafted were Cade Cavalli in the first round and Zach Deloach in the second. Who were your friends that got drafted? One of my friends from church, uh, Michael Goldberg, he got drafted, and he got drafted third round, I believe. So. Yeah, that's just really cool, especially because if you are if you follow baseball, you know the draft got shortened to five rounds, but at OU, all three of our starting pitchers went, so that'll be interesting for next year. But yeah, the draft was really interesting, and it's cool that baseball will kick off soon. Hopefully, that's a sign for football in the fall as well. But yeah, and basically the past month, I've just been working in Tampa, Um, I was working for Sunbelt Lubricants, and I was just doing some projects on some corrosion inhibitors, and it was rewarding. Got to have a lot of autonomy in how I wanted my project to go, 
and ended up finishing it. Had to extend my stay by like a couple days to be able to finish everything, but it was really rewarding. I got to use the money to like help my parents pay for some stuff for college, and so it was it was, it was good. The only sad part is, unlike you, I'm not done with my class, and my class is honestly extremely difficult. Uh, first test happened a couple weeks ago. I took the test, and I think I was just crying by the end of it because I didn't even know how to answer some of the questions. <laughs> basically, I was, uh, I just basically just gave up ten minutes early. I was taking the pictures to submit it online, and I think because I was crying, I thought that these pictures looked really clear, but upon looking at them a few days later to try to self-grade my exam, I noticed that they were so, so blurry. <laughs> Thankfully, my professor has not emailed me telling me anything about it, but honestly, I think I got like a 35 or 40, which isn't that bad because I think to get an, a C in the class, only to score a 55. So I don't know. We'll see how it turns out. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm glad that I don't have to do any work on corrosion inhibitors or your class, <laughs> but yeah, that's pretty good. The other day, my mom and I were talking about the podcast and who we'd shared it with and things of that sort. And she asked if I'd shared it with my Nana from my dad's side. And I said, no, she's not really into technology and all that stuff. And so she sent it to my Nana and kind of thought we, my dad and I should have sent it over there sooner. Uh, she lives in Michigan. And my mom was like, have you heard Michael's new podcast? And my Nana was like, probably not because I don't even know what a podcast is. So <laughs> even <laughs> even if you have family that doesn't know what a podcast is or whatever, or you have a friend that's not really a big podcast listener, still pass it along. Yeah, I've been passing it along to a lot of people who I kind of just like didn't think of sending it to at the beginning. But like as you keep going, you're like, man, maybe that person would enjoy it or have, know someone who might enjoy it, things along that nature. But yeah, I guess today's episode is Nehemiah uh, 7 and 8. And looking forward, we've kind of mapped out um, the rest of our episodes and we've kind of seen based on kind of like the the ratings on each episode, you guys really enjoy listening to another person come onto the podcast and share some thoughts and all that with interview with uh, Mike's coach from last year. So we're going to try to get more people on. We're going to be reaching out to a lot of people to try to get more interviews, uh, have some people get on on calls and give some um, ideas and pointers on some of the things we're going through. So we're really excited. Yeah, it's going to be a good next half of the season of recording. We have hopefully another interview or two coming up, maybe a theology Q&A. And then as we've said before, maybe we haven't, but it's in the show notes. At the end of the season, we want to do a Q&A where you guys send us questions. So if you want to send theology questions, Bible, personal life questions, whatever you have, Basically send anything. it our way. Yeah, just anything. Yeah, and we'll sift through those pick some, maybe do something else, depending on what the questions are like. We'll see, but that, that we think that that'll be something that's cool. Yeah, some of my favorite episodes from some of my favorite podcasts that I listen to are when they do Q&As. I just remember one time I sent in a question in my favorite uh, podcast that the host answered the question, so that was pretty cool. But yeah, send us send us some questions, and we'll, uh, we'll get to those by the end of the season. So uh, do you want to dive into Chapter 7? Yeah, let's go ahead and get into that before we use a whole episode and just catching up. Um, okay, so we're going to start with chapter 7, go all the way through chapter 8. Chapter 7 is really cool because now the wall is finished, which is what we've been going through um, for the past several episodes. And chapter 7 gives a lot of genealogy. It gives a lot of just some explanations of how they're going to protect 
and how they're going to keep going along their journey of restoration. And this is just a really good um, middle point where it doesn't really fit with the um, the wall part, but it's kind of just a middle point, but it still has a lot of really cool things, has a lot of information alluding back to previous books of the Bible. It gives a lot of, it gives a lot of insight into how God views his people, the importance he has on specific people and that kind of thing. Looking at the beginning from just verse 1 to 5, um, it's interesting that Nehemiah keeps taking precautions to guard the city. And specifically, he talks about guarding the holy places, which means that he really wants the people to not only feel safety within the walls, which is what we've been going through, but now he wants them to have safety to worship. And he wants them to value worship and it just kind of demonstrate how in the eyes of what God is doing through Nehemiah and through Ezra and through other leaders, that worship, God, worshiping God is of utmost importance. And we're going to see one of the ways how they do that in this ch- in this chapter and in chapter 8. Yeah, so just to continue that in verse 2, he puts up Hanani and Hananiah, one of whom is his brother, just to be in charge over Jerusalem. And we see that they're appointed because of faithfulness and fearing the Lord. And then he says, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened till the sun is hot. And he continues on with that. So he w- he still wasn't sure that the enemies were going to leave them alone. So he's still emphasizing guarding the important holy city. And he implements some strategic positioning for that. Yeah, and then and then we get on to verse 5, where it basically starts off with the title list of returned exiles. And this is just... It's a genealogy, and a lot of times genealogies in the Gospels, the Old Testament, a lot of times people skip over those. A lot of these names, I don't know how to say. Mike might know how to say them. But more so than just looking at specific names, we need to acknowledge that the the words that are here are inspired by God, which means that they are important for some reason, and extracting that importance is something that we've been working on doing. And figuring out, like, this isn't just a boring genealogy. There might be something here that's worth noting, worth looking into. And Mike has a few points about the part leading up into that. Yeah, so we're going to look at verse 5 first. It says, Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And then he says he found the book of genealogy. So he's not writing this book. He found this genealogy. So the next, the verses all the way through either verse 72 or 73 of this chapter are all things that have already been written. It might sound kind of lame to have God put on your heart to make a genealogy or to find one, but there's a lot here. So it is significant first because God put it on his heart, but number two, and more so for the context of the story, that there was a very small population for this large central city of Jerusalem. So he wanted to see where different families were located so he could place more in the city. And this would have to do with relocation, strengthening the city, tithing, all of those things. And what the author is doing here, you might just see, then my God put it into my heart. One thing people have a tendency to do, I think, when we open Nehemiah is to apply everything Nehemiah is as a leader to ourselves, whether it has to do with restoration or spiritual strength or something, and we just extract those things and don't put it in the context. So what's significant here is that the chronicler who is potentially and who we think might be the author of Ezra Nehemiah is contrasting this line with David. At the end of 2 Samuel, God, or at the end of 2 Samuel, David makes a census where he counts 
the number of people in Israel and in Judah. And in 1 Chronicles 21 verse 1, it says that this was led by Satan, but here in verse 5, in, Nehemiah, in uh, chapter 7, verse 5, that we're in, in Nehemiah, it says, my God put it into my heart. So there's a contrast between David doing it sinfully because he wants to count military strength and see his power rather than trust the Lord, and Nehemiah, who is working and operating out of what God is leading him to do. That's really interesting. So basically, when you say it was led on by Satan, what, what, what exactly do you mean by that? Yeah, so often, so it's definitely true that God is the one who is sovereign, so Satan cannot determine our actions or do anything of that sort in the sense that he isn't the one that's actually sovereign and in control. The only one who is is God. So if you read Job chapter 1, chapter 2, you see that God basically has Satan on on a leash using uh, Satan to accomplish his purposes. So Satan has to go to God to get permission to um, lead Job into a time of suffering, and that kind of unfolds for the rest of the book of Job until the sort of restoration at the end of the chapter. So what Satan is doing is feeding us lies. He is, as it says in First Peter, he's prowling around like a lion looking to devour. In Genesis chapter 4, um, in the story of Cain and Abel, it says that um, sin is crouching at the door. Satan is feeding us these spiritual lies, whether it be oh, lust is okay, or hey, if you just read your Bible, you'll be good enough, instead of listening to Jesus' own invitation of come and believe and you'll never be hungry again and you'll never thirst. Yeah, for sure. That that's that makes a lot of sense because, I mean, when, just whenever you said that Satan kind of made him do it, I kind of was just a little bit confused with that, but like when you like kind of break it down more into like what was really going on and the contrast between these two instances, that's like actually like a really cool contrast that we can make there. Yeah, it's definitely worth noting, it's not that God is the author of sin, but it with a broken world, God does work through evil still to accomplish his purposes. If you think of the end of the story of Joseph, Genesis 49 and 50, Joseph is saying back to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God used and intended for good. So despite the evil, um, God is using things for good, and he has Satan on a leash to accomplish his sovereign purposes. Yeah, and we see... Like, thank you for, like, that whole explanation and all that. Okay, so moving forward, I think, okay, there's there's some talk of Babylon, which kind of means that I think you told me before we started recording that the Persians invaded, the, invaded Babylon. Nehemiah is spreading them out in the city, trying to fill it up. Then we see a list of names before the, the actual genealogy starts. And I know you had a few points about this, but... Specifically, and I'm going to go for this one, Zerubbabel. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think you wanted to talk a little bit about him and give a little bit of context about kind of this verse, about verse 7. Yeah, I don't remember if we gave a little historical recount in the previous episode. But essentially, just remember that Israel had split into two kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Israel in the north was exiled in around 720 or 715 BC by the Assyrians. And then around 587 BC, God judged Judah's sin by allowing Babylon to take them into exile. And then God didn't leave them alone, though. He judged Babylon for their sin and their rebellion. And so in judging Babylon, he raised up the Persians and King Cyrus as prophesied for in uh, the book of Isaiah, book of Jeremiah. 
And then so the Persians crush the Babylonians. Then Cyrus uh, basically issues some sort of edict allowing people to return to Jerusalem. So we saw in Ezra people begin to return. And then this is that same list from Ezra chapter 2. It's just in the context of now Nehemiah needs the genealogy so he can place some in Jerusalem. So in verse 7, we see 12 names starts with Zerubbabel. The 12 names may be used by the author to echo the 12 tribes of Israel and maybe even foreshadow unknowingly the, the 12 of Jesus. But when we think about Zerubbabel, he's so pertinent to the story, but since he's really only mentioned in detail in Ezra, he doesn't get a lot of attention when people usually are in Nehemiah. So he was a main leader in Ezra 1 through 6. He was a grandson of Jehoiakim, the evil leader of Judah, one of the evil kings. And he was born in Babylon in exile, but returned to build the temple and was a governor of Judah. What's noteworthy about this and how we're going to connect this to the New Testament when we end Nehemiah is that when the temple was rebuilt in Ezra, it was actually rebuilt, but not in its former glory. It was smaller. And we know that in Ezra chapter four, that the elders who had seen the old temple were weeping at the sight of the new one because it wasn't in the glory that was Solomon's. So this second temple isn't of the same stature or the same majesty. And this is the temple that is like in this like location we're talking about right now. Yes, it's in Jerusalem. Okay. But the temple, this is the temple that was rebuilt in Ezra, but it's not in the same glory or majesty that it was built by Solomon when he built a house for the Lord. And so what's significant about that is that it's really looking forward to the day of when there's a new temple. So it's not built in its former glory. It is renovated by um, Herod, the client king of Judea in the first century BC. And a lot of the Jews loved that because it showed the splendor of God for them. However, in Haggai, who was a contemporary prophet to Ezra and Nehemiah, he does say how this is actually going to be the temple of more glory. And the reason it's going to be the temple of more glory, even though it's smaller, is because Jesus would actually walk into the temple. Even if he was banishing out the marketplace and all those things, Jesus Christ himself was going to walk into this temple, so it was going to be of greater glory. And Zechariah and Haggai both identify, identify Zerubbabel as some sort of shadow of the Messiah. And the Bible Project has a great conversation or video about this, but basically Zerubbabel's experience as a leader mirrors Ezra and Nehemiah's, where, he, where God moves through a Persian king to uh, send a leader back to Jerusalem. We had Zerubbabel, then Ezra, then Nehemiah. The leader faces opposition, and then there's some sort of anticlimax. So there's a little bit about Zerubbabel, but he is pretty pertinent to the whole Ezra-Nehemiah story. So if you're thinking about really taking them in the context of the whole, Zerubbabel was super important to the beginning of the book of Ezra. And then we get to the genealogy. So we enter. (laughs) And it is long. It is several, several verses long. The interesting (laughs) thing to me is that people are mentioned by name. And I think this is significant because that means that people are important to God by name, which means that it kind of just highlights how, like, back from Genesis through the rest of the Bible, like, we see that God made people in his image. He loves people. He knows them by name. Like, we've seen this throughout the entire Bible. And this is, like, relationship between God and humanity, how he loves us. We let him down, but his grace is always 
going to be the most important thing and his love for us is always going to be like something that's like insanely powerful and the genealogy has some other points as well that are more in depth that michael has thanks for the shout out so we see here we start in verse at the end of verse seven as it kicks off the genealogy the number of the men of the people of israel so they start to identify people by family relationship starting in Verse 26, the men of Bethlehem, we see them start to identify people by place, or at least most of them at that point are by place. Do you have anything there? If not, we see in verse 39, the priests, according to at least one commentary, the priests were about one-tenth of the total returnees. That was kind of interesting. Then we have singers. I thought that was kind of interesting because you don't really think about religious music back in the day, but there was some sort of religious music there. Yeah, before uh, singers in in uh, verse forty three, you see the the Levites. That was interesting because I found out that the Levites were actually like set apart for religious duties, that kind of thing. So it was interesting. They were like mentioned a lot throughout this whole entire um, chapter. Yeah, if you spend some time in Exodus through Deuteronomy, so it's a lot of time in the Torah, learning about religious sacrifice and religious order, especially if you think about the root word of Leviticus, uh, Levite, um, Levitical law. There's a lot there about the Levites. If you are if you just want to read a lot more about um, religious duty, religious observance, and their religious leadership. And then as we keep going, um, do you have anything else about these like middle sections up to like verse 64? No, just a couple identifications. So Maybe just a couple seconds. So verse 46, the temple servants, these were the lowest class of people associated with the temple, and it gives you a long list of sons. And then verse 57 says the sons of Solomon's servants, at least the commentary that I typically am consulting with Nehemiah, which should be in the show notes. These have an unknown origin, so we're not really sure where those come from. But then there, there's a lot of good stuff as we close up the genealogy so first is just that there's this long list and you might think well why would anyone keep this list well having this list and having record of proving your father's house like it talks about in verse 61 for the jews this links them to the promise of abraham the promise of the land the continuation of god's plan of redemption so they kept this genealogy families would of their jewish descent and they would prove their lineage basically and it's likely that those people lost their records in exile and it says basically the people in um verse 64 the people who were not in the genealogy they were like seen as unclean and they couldn't like partake in the holy food so basically not being in the genealogy in the genealogy was not good (laughs) yeah for sure it definitely at least socially and culturally not good Yes, it definitely made it socially and culturally unhelpful. It was not beneficial. I was just kind of thinking, I don't know if this is too much of a jump, but it talks about in 1 Peter chapter 2, like around verses 9 and 10, about how we are chosen now by God as some sort of royal, holy priesthood, a chosen nation prized. And just thinking like, in Christ, we're all part of this church group of priests who are all holy to God because we have the great high priest, Jesus, which the author of Hebrews expounds upon a lot. Just that the priests in speaking to God on behalf of the people and atoning on behalf of the people for their sins, we see this most clearly fulfilled and significantly fulfilled in Christ himself, that he was the perfect high priest and he fulfilled those duties perfectly by atoning for our sins once and for all. 
So just thinking about how the priesthood works today, we're all priests. There's no such thing as maybe you think of Pharisees as some sort of religious elite in the Gospels. There's no religious elite today. Our pastors and us are on the same level because we're all called into this holy royal priesthood of believers. Yeah, and then I guess ending this off, they kind of describe all the gifts, gold, silver, that kind of thing that everyone gave. Yeah, so in in verse 70, it says some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the work. So this is probably inspired by the Exodus 25 and 35 model example, where they gave to the building of the tabernacle, which was basically what you could think of as a moving temple where God would dwell among his people as they moved closer and closer to the promised land, and which was superseded when David said, I want to build you a house a basically a temple that will last forever instead of us having a tabernacle and then God said your son will build it and then that's when Solomon built it after that and then which is recorded at the beginning of first kings and then now we see the temple rebuilt in Ezra so this is probably modeling that that idea of giving to the work to build the tabernacle and then in in verse 73 it kind of like it ends with kind of like the same exact words it started with and I just wanted to see if you had anything that was significant about why they did that or why that happened. It kind of seems like a similar theme we've seen already in Nehemiah of like something kind of alluding to something that was already said at the end, at the beginning of a chapter and then alluding to it at the end of a chapter. Yeah, 73a is, is more like a pattern, a summary of what's happening, people living in their towns and why Nehemiah wanted some of them to go back or come into the city and live there, a uh, small population for a large city. However, 73b, where it starts with, and when the seventh month had come, that part is not included in the Ezra 2 listing, which makes you think that it's actually part of chapter 8. Not in the sense of, oh, we need to move the verses around. It just actually fits with the story more. So we're going to see them uh, celebrate the Festival of the Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Booths. Those things are synonymous, so uh, hopefully we don't get confused. But it's telling you the seventh month, That includes the celebration of the atonement and the Feast of Booths. So we know that it's the right time for this covenantal renewal we're going to talk about and the Feast of Booths. So what did you see when you just started reading in uh, Nehemiah chapter 8? So before we get to chapter 8, I thought of something like really funny. (laughs) Okay, so basically we're going through two chapters, right? This would be like the perfect time for like a commercial break. Like obviously we don't have any sponsors. Like, okay, if you want us to sponsor you and like talk about you on the podcast, just like send any like inquiries to our email which can be found in the, in the show notes but basically my thinking was it would be cool to give a shout out right here and the shout out I want to give is to the peppermint coffee creamer stuff that you got me to start drinking and it is so good so you guys should definitely try it yeah check out coffee mates peppermint mocha coffee cream flavor this is not an ad this is a legitimate thing that we're loving and serving you by. It will enhance your life. It Make a cup of coffee and pour in lots of peppermint mocha cream. Are you are you drinking it right now? I am drinking it right, right now. Dude, we got to cheers to that. This stuff is so good. Yeah, it's incredible. When I was really young, my cousin Dylan and I, he's actually coming this month uh, to Texas, so that's exciting. We're going to take him to Heart 8 like we talked about in one of the previous episodes. Let's go. Yeah. So uh, we used to go to Starbucks and get peppermint mocha all the time, and then recently or i think it was last year my mom was like hey they have a peppermint mocha coffee cream flavor and then so i got that and i have not had another cream since 
And with that glowing review of Peppermint Mocha Coffee Creamer, you can be sure that Mike and I will give a very good review if you guys want to give us a sponsorship. It'll help us pay the bills around here. And <laughs> now we'll go to Chapter 8. Yeah, here we go. So... <laughs> Okay, you chap- can decide for yourself if reading the law or if the peppermint mocha cream is better. However, I'll just say that when I'm reading the law or the word in the morning, it's nice to have some peppermint mocha cream with it. So they just enhance each other. So uh, let's dive in. The people gather as one man into the square before the water gate. So what's actually a question here is scholars are undecided if these next three chapters are from actually the memoirs of Ezra, and they fit at the end of Ezra in a different part of the book of Ezra. So it's a little confusing where exactly these fit in to the whole book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Remember we said that at one point, these were actually just one book together, and then since they've been split. So it starts to talk about Ezra. So who's Ezra? So Ezra, which honestly, we should just give a little bit of background on, on who he is. We, we've done in the past, but maybe it's it's useful to give a quick synopsis again. But basically, a little bit of background about him is when, so he was a scribe, he was a, a priest, he kind of like oversaw um, the worship of God. Um, his role from Nehemiah's role kind of contrasted each other. They were both still very significant, very important. But in Ezra, we see also a story of the restoration of the temple, which is like significant. And it's significant that they're talking about Ezra here also because the genealogy was also present in Ezra. So there's like a lot of connection between the two. Like Mike said, at one time they're considered to be like two parts of the same book. Yeah. So Ezra's name actually means the Lord has helped. I think that's pretty cool in Ezra chapter seven, actually. So it's not until over halfway through the book of Ezra that he returns to Jerusalem in around 458 BC, which if you remember us talking about King Artaxerxes and the years of his rule um, midway through um, the episode so far, and then back in chapter one, this was in the seventh year of Artaxerxes that he'd returned to Jerusalem. And you see in uh, verse 10 of chapter 7, it talks about how he'd set his heart on studying God's word. He taught the law. And then here we see him. He's going to begin to teach the law and people are going to worship. They're going to weep. They're going to celebrate this festival. So let's start looking at what proceeds. Yeah, let's let's look. Actually, let's before we do that, let's look into the festival. I feel like when you and I talked about this before we started recording, I did not even know the name of the festival. And I'm sure a lot of people listening probably don't know too much about um, what this festival is, what the seventh month, seventh month means. I think we should just start there, give a little bit of background. You could just give the same info you gave to me and just so everyone's kind of on the same page as like we continue going forward. Yeah, for sure. So there's three, from my knowledge, obligatory festivals for all Jewish males to attend. So the first one was spring Passover. So if you're familiar with the story of Exodus and the Passover lamb, um, this was the gift of Exodus, the gift of if the blood of the lamb was on the house, then the Lord passed over it. And we see this uh, fulfilled in the ultimate Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. Then we had Pentecost, which celebrated the gift of the law at Sinai from the book of Exodus as well. And then we had the festival of booths, which is what we're going to talk about here. Festival of the tabernacles, feast of booths, all those things are the same. And here they celebrated the gifts of provision in the wilderness. So it was also at this time that Solomon's temple was dedicated to the Lord in 1 Kings 8. And it's also the same time that 
the Jews are celebrating this when Jesus talks about giving the Holy Spirit as living water in John chapter 7. But they celebrated God's provision for them both in the past, in the wilderness, and currently, whether it be from the water uh, that came from the rock or the manna from heaven. But they're celebrating this idea of provision. It talks about in Deuteronomy 31 about how God had to choose the place for this festival. It says, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. So he's going to read this law before Israel in their hearing, which I think is pretty cool. And then just lastly, there's the there's a book on how this is, in, this is about the Gospel of John because I'm reading through that in the morning. But there's a book on how the Jewish feasts play an integral role to what John the Evangelist is doing in writing John. And Gail Yee said in her book, quote, The worshippers at the Festival of Booths looked expectantly to a future time when life-giving waters will flow from the temple and invigorate the land, just like water flowed from, for the ancestors from the rock in the wilderness. And Jesus offers this living water, the Holy Spirit, saying, if you come to me, you will never hunger, and if you believe, you shall never thirst. Oh, so, and then, and then basically, Ezra, priest, scribe, he's going to be the one leading them through the procession of this festival. And why is that significant? Okay, so everything that goes on after this, basically, Ezra's leading them through worshiping God, and He's basically going to, it says that he was above all the people in verse five. That means that like the word of God was elevated. And this is basically a form of, of worshiping the Lord. And it was, it's cool because as he's doing this, the people, you can just like tell the people, they like want to hear this knowledge. They ask him to read um, God's word. And the word that they're talking about is actually the first five books of the Bible. And basically, they spend a bunch of time reading through this. And then we see that the people who are listening, they have these intense feelings. You could say it's conviction. I don't really know exactly. But basically, we basically see that it says that they wept. Okay, this is cool to me because it kind of, to me, showed that despite the wall being rebuilt, their spiritual, like the spiritual side of their lives had not fully been restored yet. And they're kind of like seeking that out right now. And they're longing for that. Yeah, they are longing for that. And this is part of the story of the book of Nehemiah, where we really switch from the rebuilding of the wall to the emphasis uh, for a good majority of the rest of the book on covenantal renewal. And I just love these first few verses. He read from it, facing the square from early morning until midday. This this idea that maybe we need to regain today about beholding God's word with attention for long periods of time. You know, what we spend our time doing shows who and what we treasure and who we want to become. John Piper says that to be born again is to realize that Christ is to be treasured above all things. So when we read the Bible, we search the scriptures to know Christ, and we have a reverence for the word. These people stood up as the law was read to them. And this this reminds me of one of my favorite preachers, Russell Moore. Before he speaks either... Um, you know, at a conference or in a church, he asked the congregation to stand because uh, the scripture is breathed out for the Holy Spirit. And he says it helps him get in a sort of reverence for the word and reminding himself that the Holy Spirit is accompanying him in this breathed out scripture. And it's, it's, it's honestly really interesting that you said that he has them stand because here we also see them stand. 
And another significant point that you brought up, like what a, like a specific speaker does is as I was reading this, this kind of seemed like a kind of like a, a masterclass on like how to be a good teacher, a pastor, that kind of type. Just because I know that Ezra kind of has that role. And in verse eight, he says like he read from he read from the law of God. And then he says, then he gave the sense, which to me kind of means that he kind of explained to them, gave it like some application, some like deeper meaning so that the people, it says they understood the reading. Okay, this kind of, to me, I thought, oh, he's explaining how you need to be a teacher, how you need to be a preacher, that kind of thing. But actually, now hearing you talk about that, he honestly might be saying that more so than just reading God's word, we need to do more investigation ourselves, ourselves through commentaries, through speaking with other people about what we read, to kind of spend more time to actually like understand what is going on there, more so than just reading, but reading for understanding. Yeah, so in Ephesians 4, uh, I'm doing a memorization thing through Ephesians. In Ephesians 4, talks about Paul's writing and he says, God has given the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers for building up the body of Christ and to equip them for the work of ministry. So the idea of consulting commentaries and books and doing theology or um, biblical understanding and community isn't us saying, oh, we can't understand on our own at all. It's inviting, it's it's accepting the invitation that God is offering us of, hey, I've given gifts to people in the church, so let's listen to their voices. There's things that they have to say that you might not have thought of or seen in the text. So this is utilizing the gifts of the people that God has provided, where it says they helped the people to understand the law while people remained in their places. That's in uh, verse 7. And it's just really interesting to me because this is something that we've been talking about for the past month, but one of the coolest things for us doing this podcast is that ourselves, we're getting to spend more time researching, investigating about Nehemiah, about other topics. We spend a lot of time texting each other about it. And it's really cool like how much we're learning, how much we're growing. And if I'm just thinking, my process is the first time I look at the chapter, I just read it straight through, see what's there. That's some, it's some pretty good understanding. I, I pull out some pretty good points. Then I look like through commentaries and that kind of thing. But by the time it gets to the point that Mike and I get here and we spend like 10, 15 minutes talking about like a few specific points we might have. So we kind of like roadmap the whole, the whole episode, that time that we spend talking about it kind of just like makes both of us just like see both of each other's perspectives and makes us have a much deeper understanding of what's going on to the point. Like now when I'm talking to people about my faith, I see myself quoting things from Nehemiah or quoting things from like books that I've spent more time studying through. I really like what you said there just about when you're going through life or you're thinking about your faith, you you end up quoting versus you spend time in. You know, people, it's not that scripture memorization is bad and I'm a big supporter of that, but people often think the only way the scripture is going to be ingrained is if they just spend time endlessly memorizing every verse that they want to. The more time we just spend reading as they were doing, reading the law, but the more time we just spend reading the entire uh, scripture, the entire Bible, it's just going to ingrain itself in us. Jesus says about how we should let his words abide in us. And so this is the same thing here that we want to apply. Just, you know, we want to behold God's word. And as we talk about it with other people, as we meditate over it, we're going to be that blessed man discussed in the beginning of the Psalms in Psalm chapter one about how he has a foundation. Blessed is the man who meditates on the law day and night. And so when the word gets more ingrained in us, when we spend time beholding it, it becomes what we treasure and it becomes the lens through which we see the world. And just, just to give you a heads up, we're kind of like running out on time a little bit. 
I want to. There's a few things that I still. I know that we both want to want to hit on still. Basically, whenever the people wept, okay, they're basically told, like, no, like, don't do that. Have joy. Um, specifically in verse ten, it says, "And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength." Okay, I thought this was really cool because basically what they're saying is that our joy in God's goodness and grace should be greater than our sadness in our own sin. And that's, I think, one significant point. I think you had a few things about that too. Yeah, so it's not that their motive was bad. They were weeping over sin. It's just that this day, this festival, was not a time for lament. It was a time for joy. And it was supposed to be that gathering of joy. But one thing I was wondering is, like, how do people read this? I have heard Nehemiah 8.10 quoted so many times, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Do you think it's their joy in the Lord? Or do you think it's the joy that he has in his people or the joy that he gives them? I feel like there's so many ways to interpret that. Oh, and there's not there's not necessarily maybe a right way. It's just that when we follow the Lord, when we see his faithful covenant promises fulfilled, and when we're worshiping him rightly, we do get that joy and we should walk in that. It's just like, is it their joy? Is it his joy? Because it says the joy of God, but it could be the joy that he's providing them. I don't know. I just see that quote so many times and I'm like, how many people are reading it in the context of the Feast of Booths and the reading of the law? And then number two is, which joy is it? I don't know if it's pertinent to understand that, but it is kind of interesting to think about. Yeah, for sure. I, I didn't really think think of that. I guess depending, I guess there's not a comma there, but depending if you had one or not, it could change it or depending how how you read it. But I mean, who knows? But that is that is very interesting. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Verse 13 the, it says on the second day, the heads of the of the father's houses, they basically, and the Levites as well, they basically go back to Ezra and then they learn again. They study the law again. I thought that was very significant and like very interesting. Yeah, I love that. Gathering to immerse, gathering to learn, continuing to be immersed in the law and to learn and to meditate. I thought that was really cool that they all gathered again. Again, it was in community. They studied the words together they got the understanding and how it fitted into God's covenant so that was really cool and it says in verse 14 they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people should dwell in booths so they just they they're like figuring out that they should do this feast of booths so it's possible that they might have forgotten about the feast of tabernacles this feast of booths Um, Since the last appearance was back in Ezra chapter 3, it's possible they'd forgotten just because it says they found it, which kind of makes it sound like they didn't already have the knowledge or have that word. Yeah, and and I don't have anything else for the rest of this chapter. Um, I don't know if you do, but... Yeah, just, uh, just a couple things. So in verse 17, it talks about, For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. Talking about the dwelling in booths, celebrating the Feast of Booths. It's not talking about Jeshua from Ezra. It's actually talking about the son of Nun, as it says, who was Joshua, back from Joshua right before the time of the judges, right after the Torah finishes up. And it's weird because they just celebrated this feast in Ezra chapter 3. So what he's actually probably trying to iterate to people is that it hadn't been held in this spirit since the time of Joshua, this okay. this mourning over sin, this time of joy this again this is the joshua from earlier in the old testament narrative not from this late in the story but then in verse at the end of verse 17 it talks about they had very great rejoicing and 
man, just to see people meditating on the law, uh, thinking about restoring the covenant and just having joy doesn't feel like it gets much better than that. And they're just getting back on the right track. And that's what we're going to see throughout the rest of this book. Yeah, good. for sure. Yeah, thanks for tuning back in. We're excited to get back recording. Send us questions. And please, please, please let us know if you try out the peppermint mocha cream. You know I'm not a fan of Whataburger. Maybe you can't get on board with that, but I know everybody will like this. Also, let us know if you like having the verses we talk about in the notes for the episodes. That's something we've tra- kind of tried to figure out if it's useful or if it's not useful um, or if it's just enough to just say them in the episode. But yeah, just let us an email, I guess. Yeah, shoot us an email. Contact us. Uh, we want to hear from people that are listening and we can see on the map there's people listening from pretty much all over the U.S. and in Canada. So that's pretty exciting, especially since I don't know people that are listening in all of the different states that we have mapped Neither out. Neither do I. Neither do I. So thanks for tuning in to Radically Normal. And we will be back soon for the episode on Thursday and then Nehemiah chapter 9 next Monday. Sounds good. All right. Bye, guys. Bye.